I got it. That's it. I woke up this morning and I had this burning thought, this indwelling thought that just won't let me go. It revolves around the term rainbow love. The term just came in my head this morning and I'm trying to flesh it out. You know, when I think of a rainbow, we think of a rainbow in the sky and explaining just exactly what a rainbow is. But a rainbow comes around usually after some rain. In the good book, after the flood, on his ark, the rainbow came. So we know that whenever there's a big rain or a small rain, rainbow comes out. There's no mystery to a rainbow. A rainbow comes about when there is some kind of hot, atmospheric pressures and changes, some things that I, I'm not qualified to explain. Nonetheless, after a big rain, a lot of times you can look over and you'll see a rainbow. So a rainbow only comes under certain conditions. Not all rain. You see rainbow, because right now it's been raining for the last day or two, and I still haven't seen a rainbow yet. So the condition for a rainbow is not right yet. So rainbow love, as I imagine it, has to do with conditional love. Primarily, the love between my parent and the child and the conditions that are placed on it. See, I had an encounter with a man and his daughter. I was able to stand back off to the side and watch and listen. This encounter was filled with conditional love. It started out by watching them meeting after not seeing each other for a while. The expression of love, hugging and kissing was palpable. You could actually feel the love just watching it. But as the visit continued or endured, <laughs> because that's what it turned into an endurance, you could see all the fissures that existed in the relationship, which tend to suggest that it's not what it appears to be. When you look deeper, it's different. So I'm thinking about a condition and love and what are some of the conditions that we place on love, primarily with our kids. We are happy with them when they are doing everything that we approve or like. And we give them everything. We throw everything at them. But when they decide to strike out on their own and make their own choices and their own decisions, which in many instances will be contra to our own desires, our own values. Then we withdraw that love. And then we leave that child in that area of nothingness. And they are left frustrated and angry. We should pay attention to the love that we give our kids. And how this love is doled out. Because I believe powerful and keeps us together. And if we dole it out in fractions, then the response we will get will be fragmented also. The family is the basic unit of society. This is where children should be taught and nurtured into adulthood. With the deterioration of the family will come the deterioration of the society. So we need strong family. But to have strong families, we need strong parenting, strong values. Now, strong parent is not necessarily one who yells and shouts at their kids to get them to be right. 
In fact, that's what they're not. A strong family is one that has a culture, an amiable culture. Amiable means that it is loving and caring for all the individuals who are part of that family. Kids feel welcome in there. <laughs> kids feel welcome? What do you mean that they feel welcome? The kids are always should always be welcome. They're part of the family. True, they are part of the family. But as adults, a parent, if we're not careful of how we interpret this, that child being part of the family, we can easily ruin them with our attitude and our behavior. See, first thing I realize is that I got out of bed this morning and the thought hit me and it said, the children, they're homeless, powerless, destitute, and poor. They own nothing. Parents own everything. You own the house they live in, clothes on their backs, the food they eat, everything. And when they're younger, you own their entire attitude and behavior. And of course, when they become teenagers, then they start to try this individuation. I think that's what it is. Um, and that usually start early. I think, I, think, I think someone mentioned probably the age of three or four, two or, you know, when they get into the toddler age, when that's when they start recognizing that they are really different from you. And then they start then, at that point, to individuate. Now, don't beat up on me with that word. Nonetheless, you get the picture. They step a little bit away from you, away from you, away from you, away from you. And then when they get to teenagers, they kind of like not just step away, they jump away. And that can be scary too for a parent. Suddenly, the child starts to behave um, different, much different. Doing things that you don't agree with, and things that sometimes revile you in some way. They take chances that you never even imagined and you never approve. Why do teenagers take so many risks? Why? Well, you know, I was listening to this piece on the radio. They were talking about trying to explain that there's a biological basis for the risk-taking behavior that teenagers engage in. There are two systems that are developing pretty much at the same time, but they're developing at different rate. The one system we call the limbic system, and the limbic system has to do with emotion. It, it processes emotion. It deals with the feeling of reward that we get when we accomplish something. You know, that high we get, you know, that magical high. And then the other system is a prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is that part of your brain that right behind the forehead right there, the executive functioning takes place there. And this is the place where we do all our reasoning and our understanding and all the wonderful things that we need to take us through the rest of our lives, to energize our lives. The problem here is that the limbic system develops faster than the prefrontal cortex. That makes sense now if you if you think of it so the teenagers bent on taking risks you can see where their ability to take risk outweighs their ability to reason if i understand exactly what was being said the point is made that the prefrontal cortex will develop fully around the age of 25 
So a teenager start at 13. So let's say 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. We talk about, man, that's a lot of years that you have to wait for this child to be able to reason <laughs> properly. Lots of years. And all through those years, so you have the tumultuous teenage years. Of course, there are variables that will determine how that child progresses through these stages. Our goal is to have them wait until they get to 25 <laughs> so we can let them loose. We know that's not going to happen, but our goal is to keep them safe during that time. And as I said, they're variables. So how they progress on this scale or this continuum will be determined by how the family is structured and how it is nurtured. We nurture the children, yes, but the family needs to be nurtured too. The family is a unit. Let's think of the family as this garden. And each individual plant in the family garden has to be nurtured. Sure, parent has to be nurtured. The kids need to be nurtured. And together, the garden will flourish. Yes, you have this, these two huge plants that are called parents. But if the family is set up properly, the overall function and success of the family will not be left totally to the two aging structure. <laughs> it will not be totally up to them how the family runs. So the kids have to have some say in the family. You have to be treated with a certain amount of respect. Yes. And given a certain amount of freedom, given them a certain amount of ability to make decisions and make choices, and those things start early. The principal unit, which the principal at this point would be the mother and father, which are the father and mother, dependent which order you want to take it in. If you think the father is the most important one in the family, then we talk about it. If it's the mother, then we say that. Well, those are the principal operators in the family. And they set the tone for the family. But the tone that is set by them should not be dictatorial. It's true. There are times when we have to dictate to our children this and that, that and this, left, right. Because when they're very young and their decision-making is non-existent and poor, we have to supervise their thoughts as well as their behavior. But that's why I say supervise their thoughts. We're not trying to inject thoughts in their head. We want them to learn to think and make choices and make decisions. Because when they get to the teenage years, whatever it is that they've learned earlier on, they'll have a foundation to ride on. Those of us parents who control our kids, every whim from yay high to yay high, and they never learn independent thinking, independent thoughts, and they're always waiting for approval before they can go ahead in everything, then we are creating intellectual midgets. We are creating emotional midgets. Yes, we are intellectual beings. Most importantly, 
we are emotional beings. I think our emotional aspect of our lives dominates who we are. We're a nice professor, we're a lawyer, we're a doctor. We are an Indian chief. And so the <laughs> as the cliche goes. But nonetheless, our emotion dominates. There are lots of research that shows how decisions are made. A lot of our decisions that we make that seem to be practical and factual. If we drill down, we'll see that it's emotion that drives us. So a family is an emotional atmosphere that exists within the home. And the home can be anywhere. It could be under a tarp. We've seen refugees surviving under tarps. And the family is intact. They still have their culture, family culture that is, respect still for mother, father, respect for children, respect for this, and they're still existing. So, if we as adults want to create emotional strength and power within our family, then we have to spend energy and time on giving our children emotional platforms that are sturdy and stable. That's not easy if the parents are not stable themselves. And stable doesn't necessarily have to involve any kind of pathology, although that is definitely an area of consternation. Nonetheless, that stability whereby you treat each other with respect. I remember maybe it's too soon and maybe I'm talking too soon but I had the opportunity to meet a friend that I had not seen for probably over 30 years went to school together he, he was on his vacation he decided to make a plane stop in my city so that we could just get together for a little while and I went and I got him and it was great I brought him home along with his wife and family and we sat down for dinner and just for a chat and you know I have two girls and I was just looking at them how they were behaving around him and I was proud of their behavior. I'm going to be a little bit selfish here. I'm allowed. But I felt proud of myself. I felt proud of myself because I'm looking at them and I'm thinking they were behaving so well, so courteous and pleasant and calm and engaging and I'm thinking, wow. I never thought of them being this way. We just see them as the children growing up. But I was proud. I felt like they were expressing parts of my belief, my feeling, my attitude towards the world. I just see it. Maybe I'm delusional, but I look at it. I'm thinking, wow. And they didn't know him. They'd never heard of him before. But they looked at him and knew he was important to me. And I have no words to express the feeling that I got, except the one that tells me that they felt love. There was a family structure. There was an emotional structure in this family, one that was enduring. There was an enduring emotional structure that has been established in my family. And for that, I'm proud. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>